Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for today's Zoom Into Books and Big Time Talker simulcast as we talk to author Bruce McLaughlin. The book is He Said, She Said, and then he went to jail. It's available at he said, she said, book.com. And the show is brought to you by our sponsor, speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker or you're a meeting planner looking for a speaker, you can find one another at speakermatch.com. Bruce McLaughlin is a respected attorney in the Washington, D.C. metro area who went through every parent's nightmare scenario during a very contentious divorce. His wife accused him of sexual assault of his own children. Bruce McLaughlin was sent to jail, spent time behind bars, was eventually completely exonerated of all charges, has reconciled with his children, and now is telling the story. And he said, she said. And Bruce McLaughlin joins us to tell the story on the program today. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for being here to talk about a very painful subject. And the title of your book, He Said, She Said, contains a pretty interesting acronym. Tell us what that acronym means. Well, good afternoon, uh, Burke. And thank you, Kathy, for letting me be part of your podcast. Um, the, the book uh, is a, an acronym for capital S, capital A, capital I, capital D, sexual allegations in divorce. It's a unique uh, subset of sexual abuse cases involving usually a parent's children, it can be both uh, uh, a an allegation made by a father or by a mother against uh, the children of the parents. And uh, the interesting irony is, is that in most sexual abuse of children cases, children we know tell the truth. And uh, those cases are predominantly true. In this subset of cases, which I want to highlight in the book, a lot of people don't know, that would be the public, uh, jurors, judges, lawyers, particularly prosecutors, don't know that where there is a divorce, as you pointed out, a contentious divorce was mine, involving children that sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, unfortunately, one parent tends to make a false allegation um, by instilling false memory in children to report uh, sexual abuse by the other parent if that other parent is alienated and separated by court order from his children or her children uh, against uh, the, uh, the, the other parent, which then uh, gives that parent an advantage in a court uh, in a divorce court. If you're just joining us for the podcast today, uh, there will be some some graphic uh, descriptions of some pretty sordid stuff in the program. So uh, parental guidance is suggested. And as they say, viewer discretion is advised. Bruce McLaughlin has written 
this story, and, and you cover a ton of ground in this book. Uh, you're a military veteran, uh, part of the JAG Corps, well-respected attorney here in the Washington area. You not only went through this horribly contentious divorce where these uh, these public allegations flew, you eventually wound up behind bars for many years. And, and for folks who are, are familiar with perhaps the Innocence Project and, and uh, folks that work to help exonerate people who are behind bars uh, for things that they were accused of but were proven to be not guilty of, you fall into that world too. That's a lot. So when someone says, hey, give me a, a short description, what is this book about? What do you tell them? Well, I should say that these said cases are 80% on average false, whereas the child abuse cases that I referred to that are not uh, in a divorce situation are predominantly true, 80% true. So what I tell people is the, the unique aspects of a said case that I've just explained, but I tell them if there is a, a requirement to be brief, and we lawyers are sometimes not very brief, Burke, but uh, it's a true story involving uh, innocent children and an innocent man who was falsely accused of sexually abusing his own four children, two boys and two girls, by a woman wanting desperately, in this case, to return to her native country of New Zealand. And in fact, did that. And we were under the Hague Convention because both signatory countries, the US and New Zealand, signatories of that treaty, I was able through the help of our State Department to get those children back from New Zealand. It's an unbelievable story. I mean, it, it, it truly is. And I know you lived it. And I wonder how difficult it is for you after all these years to still talk about it because it's, it's pretty tough stuff you went through. Is it still hard? Well, you know, initially it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to talk about anything so sordid as sexual abuse. Sexual abuse of children is even worse. And sexual abuse of your own children is something that is uh, quite sordid indeed. But if you know you're uh, telling the truth, if you know that the allegations are false, then you have a duty. I, have, I had a duty, I felt, on behalf of my children to speak that truth so they were not, uh, they, they, they were not alienated by these false allegations of being abused. And neither was, was I. So when you're trying to speak the truth, it makes it easy to overcome the sordid details. For folks who are not familiar with Bruce's story, it's been covered in you know, the Washington Post, ABC News, Primetime Live, um, The Times, you know, hundreds of, of media outlets. Um, but for those folks that are not familiar, Bruce, paint the story for us a little bit. When and where did you first meet your, your former wife? So Robin and I met here in this country. She was a, an au pair uh, in the Bethesda area of Maryland. And we were in a church. Uh, we met in a church called Fourth Presbyterian Church in the mid-70s. Got married in 1980 and uh, had four beautiful children. I still have those beautiful children today, two boys who are older 
now in their 30s, uh, and two girls who are just turning 30, uh, twin girls, blue-eyed, blue, uh, uh, red-haired, uh, beautiful girls. So um, we got to know each other. We got married in the local area of my parents' um, pre-Civil War home and, and near the Gettysburg, Pennsylvania area. And we were married for 16 years before uh, literally this whole thing uh, burst open. What was it about Robin when you initially met her that, that said she's the one? Well, I was attracted to her, uh, her physical beauty. She, she was a, a towhead, uh, tall, um, beautiful accent from New Zealand, um, had a faith that uh, was, uh, I thought, very compelling. Um, and uh, she was fun to be with. And then eventually things began to go sideways. When did you first get an inkling that this is not what I signed up for? And, and when did things start to go bad? And how did it unravel? Well, Robin had uh, some pastor friends, associate pastor friends, who convinced her that I was not the right person for her. Believe it or not, the church was involved in the opposite way in which they should be involved. And this one uh, male pastor uh, had some issues, honestly. He convinced uh, Robin that uh, God was telling him that I had sexually abused our children. And um, he was just dead wrong and had Robin go to each of the children and have them write crib notes and instill in them over the course of many months, the belief, in fact, in these young children's minds, I had the two boys were nine and seven at the time, my girls were five, talking about events that occurred two to three years earlier than this had no idea really what they were talking about, but by repeating it over and over again to a power adult, memory was instilled in them that caused them to believe these sexual abuse uh, stories about their father as true when they were not true at all. The book is He Said, She Said. Bruce McLaughlin is the author, the subject of the book, and it's available at he said, she said, book.com or wherever books are sold. Uh, second edition ebook will be available in late April. When this is happening to you, well, well let me ask you, how far into the marriage were you when uh, these these uh, pastors got involved and, and began to drum up these, uh, what were proven to be false allegations against you? So in other words, how many good years did you have before things started to go south? We were together about 14 years, and then we separated for a while because we were having um, some some fights, and uh, and it was during that time that um, uh, these allegations were, were uh, germinated over the course of two years. You're an attorney in Northern Virginia, and this happens, and I wonder you know, as, as a man and a father myself, what must go through your head? I mean, are you dismissive of something like that in the beginning? You go that this is never going to gain traction. They're going to see this as an angry soon to be ex-spouse or what, what happens in your head? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I was not 
taking these very seriously at all, Burke. Um, I thought they were just a load of, of hooey and thought that the system would balance itself and correct itself. Uh, I was separated from my children, but then I was arrested and I was put behind bars and I was not allowed to participate in my own defense uh, with, with trial lawyers who I didn't realize were uh, just occupied with other cases and didn't have much time to devote to mine. And I ended up uh, literally um, having to uh, suffer the indignity of a guilty verdict uh, from a prosecutor, by the way, a Commonwealth attorney here in Loudoun County, Virginia, who wanted in the worst way to parlay this uh, conviction of a, an attorney, uh, a lawyer in his county, uh, for purposes of his reelection. Wow. So this is something that, that most of us will, you know, hopefully never have to deal with, to have your your reputation and, you know, and your name debated and, and drugged through the mud in the public eye like that. Do people, you know, begin to look at you sideways whenever you walk into a restaurant before you go to jail? Uh, you know, are there whispers behind your back? Do you feel all that changing around you? Did you lose friends? Paint a picture of, of what your life was like while it was all sort of crashing down around you. Well, I was fortunate to have some strong friends who helped me even when I was put behind bars. They helped me to prepare for trial. They helped me in my post-trial relief efforts uh, to get a new trial and ultimately to get a, uh, a, a an acquittal, uh, which exonerated me. Uh, I spent a lot of time during that time after being falsely accused of being in jail. So it was more having to deal with fellow inmates and surviving that whole process of the indignity of being considered a child molester in the jail or penitentiary system where I had to survive by my wits. And oftentimes I would find the meanest, biggest, baddest uh, convict uh, and I would make a deal with him. And I would say, look, I'm an attorney. I'm falsely accused. Everybody says they're falsely accused in here, but I really mean it. I'll represent you for free on your habeas petition. That is a typically a petition to get relief after you've been convicted. Um, if you will cover my back. And I was able to survive as a result of these little deals that I worked wherever I was sent. Uh, and the prosecutors who hid evidence in my case that was uh, brought out the second trial, exonerating me. Uh, sent me to the deepest bowels of Virginia, to a supermax prison uh, called Wallens Ridge, where a gun was trained on you 24-7 in and outside of the pod where you were living. Um, so it was rather intimidating, to be sure. Our guest is Bruce McLaughlin. The book is He Said, She Said, and it's available at he said, she said book.com. He's our guest in the Big Time Talker podcast. Um, let's go into the courtroom. And you're an attorney. You had done, I'm sure, uh, dozens if not hundreds of hours in courtrooms, maybe even in that courtroom where you were tried. So you know how the whole system works. A layperson like me, most of our viewers, most of our listeners, 
would be a fish out of water. You knew what was happening when you were in there. So to stand there and, and see it all fall apart around you must have really knocked the, the wind right out of you. Oh, it absolutely devastated me, Burke, uh, to the point where when that guilty verdict came in, uh, I reached the nadir of my uh, experience through this whole process and tried to commit suicide, literally uh, on the bar of the shower uh, the next morning. And fortunately, this little still small voice inside of me um, I, I believe was telling me not to do that. And uh, I took the cord off of the, of the bar uh, that I had made from a sheet. And I stepped down from the chair with the water running. And I said, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna fight this. And through perseverance and the help of some really good friends uh, and the second lawyer who, who really took the bull by the horns, his name was Alex LeVay, helped in my acquittal on the second trial. You talked about how you met your ex-wife Robin in church. And then, and so that tells me you are a man of faith. And then to have these pastors at another church down the road uh, collude with her to come up with these stories and then feed them to those kids. How has that affected uh, your own personal faith? Are you still a believer? Are you still a man of faith? <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you that I am. And uh, it was my faith that got me through this process, Burke. Uh, and despite the sordid aspects of the church being involved, I realized that churches are run by people like you and me, and we all make mistakes. And even though the entire congregation of this church aligned against me after having kicked me out of, this, uh, of their uh, congregation, coming to, to the court on my first trial and sitting behind the prosecutor, I think sent a big message to the jury that this guy must be guilty. And uh, that coupled with some other deficiencies, not having all the evidence in the case from a prosecutor who was playing hardball um, caused my uh, guilty um, conviction. That said, I don't uh, want to confuse the faith that I have with some of the people who were misled in this case to believe that I was someone who I was not. One of the, the interesting things that I took away from the book that surprised me was that uh, you were not able to to really face your accusers, in this case, your children in court. And, and again, as a father myself, I can't imagine, first of all, having the kids taken away from you and you're not able to see them. And when you are able to see them for a little while, you got somebody looking over your shoulder the whole time. But when you can't face your accusers in court, you can't try to set the record straight. You really were in there fighting with kind of both hands tied behind your back. Well, that's an interesting uh, issue that you have just brought up, Burke. Uh, that's why it's so important in our Bill of Rights to have a, uh, a Sixth Amendment right to confront your accusers. Uh, that is directly in a courtroom. The problem in Virginia was at the time, 
they made an exception and put uh, young children who would be intimidated and put into fear uh, such that they couldn't testify uh, in a straightforward manner in front of their accuser, um, abuser, uh, in a separate room with a video link uh, to the courtroom. Uh, so the prosecutor and one of my attorneys was asking questions of the children in a back room of the courthouse with a jury looking at an empty witness chair and then looking at me and going, this guy must be guilty because not even his own children have the ability because they're so fearful to be sitting in the same room as their abuser. And uh, the Supreme Court of the, of the United States has ruled on this case. It's uh, Craig versus the United States, I think it is, where they in a 4-3 split have said, is it the right of the child that should predominate over the right of the accused? And they've held four to three, at least at the moment, that yes, the right of the children should prevail. The problem is, how do you deal with the innocent, uh, in this case, father, who is made to look like he's guilty without the benefit of being able to see his children in the courtroom and have a jury observe that transaction to see if the children are telling the truth, or maybe they're making this up because their mother is pushing them to do so. That was one of the reasons that I was also convicted. Bruce McLaughlin, our guest today, he's written a book about this incredible experience he went through, a tough experience I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. The book is uh, He Said, She Said, available at he said, she said book.com. Bruce works now to help those who have been falsely accused of crimes to, to, to seek exoneration. Uh, and a portion of the proceeds from the sale of the book go to funds that that will do that. You eventually are convicted and sent to jail. I wonder if in your heart of hearts, if you can go back now in your mind to when you stood up before the judge, before he said, you're guilty, did you think for sure he was going to say, not guilty, you know, release this man and send him home. Where were you in your head at that moment when the judge says you're guilty and, and what happens inside your heart at that moment? Well, I, I felt, uh, Burke, uh, Did you see it coming? Did you see the guilty coming? I did not see it coming. I, and maybe it's just because I knew in my heart I was innocent and I thought the jury would figure it out. The problem is, is that I took it too lightly. I didn't oppose with every single fiber in my body uh, the accusation of this, this crime when it happened. And, and I would encourage anybody who goes through this to fight it and to fight it uh, vehemently when it does happen with anything and everything that you can throw at the system. Because the system sometimes as we all know, does not work for everyone. Uh, sometimes if you don't have enough money, uh, I'm a black person or an Hispanic, I don't get a fair, necessarily a fair defense. Uh, if I am accused of child abuse, uh, I sometimes don't get a fair defense because the average layperson thinks that children are telling the truth. Uh, 
Sure. I sometimes don't get a fair defense if uh, the prosecutors are hiding evidence, which was, in fact, in uh, notes that were written by my ex-wife telling the children what to say. We weren't able to get those notes in our uh, trial, which the jury could have seen and compared with what the children were actually saying in their testimony as sometimes 180 degrees different. So you get the, the punch in the gut when you hear guilty. And then does it become real? When does this become real to you that, oh my God, I'm going to jail for this? Is it when you get to the jail and they fingerprint you? Is it when the door slams shut? What happens? It, it, uh, it was a, a harrowing experience. Um, th there was a time when, when the, uh, the bailiff called out the jury verdicts and my knees buckled. And I looked back at my mother and my brother and they were crying and I was crying. And uh, the bailiff put me in shackles and led me out uh, the other door of the courthouse heading towards the jail. It was at that point I realized this is not going in the right direction. I'm sure you had represented clients who were incarcerated before. Actually, I should ask that because some attorneys never set foot in jail. Had you ever been in a jail before this happened? You know, I didn't practice law avidly before this happened. I was a, uh, a national speaker teaching uh, alternate dispute resolution, negotiation techniques, arbitration, um, mediation, and so forth. And uh, this experience, once I was exonerated four years and two months later, after having spent that time in jail and in the penitentiary, led me to uh, become a trial attorney. And and what was very helpful to me was confronting this head on and practicing law once I got my law degree back in the very jurisdiction, in the very courthouse, actually, that had sentenced me uh, to uh, 13 years of, of incarceration. Oh so, my God. So you would really, you had not spent any time in jail before you're the guy who's handcuffed and thrown in a slammer. Not much. I did spend a wow. good bit of time in jail defending uh, uh, defendants uh, after that, because I did uh, defend criminals, uh, I should say those criminally charged um, after this, as well as uh, other uh, uh, issues involving divorce and, and uh, personal injury. But no, I only set foot in the jail after the fact. So it changed the trajectory of, of how you practiced law, of course, because you saw what it was like. What would surprise someone who's, who's tuning in right now about uh, the prison experience? What do we not know? What is, what is different than you see in movies and TV, for better or worse? Take us behind bars. Well, it's a scary proposition on many fronts. People can understand that. Uh, it's mainly this pang of loneliness that haunts you wherever you go. When you hear bars 24-7 opening and closing and uh, jailers telling you where to go, when to go, what to eat, uh, 
and you get a sense of alienation from the world. You are sometimes put behind bars by yourself and you have to live with yourself and you have to confront your own demons and you have to um, persevere. That then coupled with the fact that you have to defend yourself because sometimes you're not in with the best of company. And in the jail system, in the penitentiary system, and everybody knows your crimes because they're always published in the newspapers and somebody will invariably spread the news that you are on the second tier of the, uh, the, the hierarchy of uh, offenses that uh, fellow inmates consider to be worst to the highest, that the worst is being a snitch, someone who tells on other inmates and those people are the bottom rung of this hierarchy. The second level, right not far from that, are uh, convicted child molesters. And so I had this stigma attached to me that was like a, um, it, it was like a noose around my neck. Uh, Did you have a target had, on your back the whole time you were there? I mean, when you went to eat or to the shower or the bathroom, I mean, were you always looking over your shoulder? You had to have one one uh, one uh, eye turned to your back, and again, uh, I tried to get the help of uh, certain inmates, as I said earlier, to uh, get my back in the event that I wasn't strong enough to defend myself. What's the worst thing that happened to you in prison? I think one of the worst things was being knocked cold and hitting a table uh, by a convicted murderer who I was playing chess with just because I had made uh, a good move on the chessboard and he didn't like that. Um, almost, almost died. Yeah. Oh yeah. Bruce McLaughlin, our guest today, the book is He Said, She Said. It's Bruce's incredible journey of being accused of sexually molesting his own children, going to jail for it, being completely exonerated. So you're in prison. You've got to be at, at the lowest point in your life. You come from very high highs, and now you're there. Eventually, a ray of hope comes. And what is that ray of hope? Well, uh, I was able to secure the services thanks to the, uh, uh, the financing of my mother, my late mother. Um, not everybody has that benefit of having finances to engage a second round of attorneys in a hard fought battle to try and win your freedom. So I sympathize with a lot of defendants out there who like me, are falsely accused, but don't get that second chance. Um, either because the evidence isn't found to, to exonerate them, or they don't have the resources to try and find it, or the friends that I had to be able to find it. Um, so uh, that that's certainly one of the major factors there. Yeah. You said uh, earlier in the conversation, Bruce, you were in prison for a little over four years. Um, you got a, a chance at the second trial. And, and as you said, thank God, thank God your mom had the means to help facilitate 
you know, a, a second mounting of, of a defense for you. Um, when you went back to court the second time, what was different? What made this different? Why, why the second time around did uh, a jury find you innocent of these charges and, and, and completely exonerate you? Well, I, I had the, the, um, uh, the confidence of a, the confidences of a very good attorney in the Leesburg community. Uh, his name is Alex LeVay. Uh, Alex cared about uh, my case. He, he uh, was approached by my mother, who he was really fond of, and took the case in large part because of her pleading with him. Uh, and he was prepared. And he engaged with me and he wanted to know every single bit of evidence and he wanted my perspective and he spent the time and the toil necessary to be the most knowledgeable one in the courtroom when time came to try and convince a jury of your innocence. If you don't have means to bring an Alex into your court and let's say you are like an awful lot of folks and you have to rely on a public defender. It's not a good thing, is it? Well, I'm not going to say that every public defender is uh, someone who is ill-prepared or is not uh, well-versed uh, to defend you in court. We have They're overburdened though, right? Wouldn't you agree that they've got way more cases than they can handle? Well, Yes, oftentimes that is the case, and it's not because of their lack of legal acumen. It's just the simple matter of numbers that sometimes uh, cause them not to devote uh, the attention that is needed to a difficult case such as this one. Uh, but yeah, you you have to you have to understand that a lot of people are behind bars because they didn't get. Uh, the legal representation, um, and they are falsely accused, like me, um, of either a paid lawyer or one that might be a public defender. If you're just joining us, Bruce McLaughlin is our guest. He said, she said is the book. He said, she said, book.com is the website. Um, you go back to court, you're eventually exonerated, and then the real work begins. As tough as it was being in jail for over four years, how do you go about rehabilitating that relationship with your children? And, and where are you today, lo these many years later? One step at a time, Burke. Uh, one little step, sometimes two back, then you make two forward. With the children, it was a slow process, one that involved the help of my mother and my brother uh, my sister-in-law, um, and people who the children knew besides me who they could trust. Um, eventually, the judge gave me the opportunity with supervision to be part of the children's lives, and they began to know me again as the loving, caring, involved father uh, that they said they wanted to live with before Robin lowered the boom of false allegations of abuse to prevent that from happening. And today, those kids are adults. Um, I'm sure it's not something that comes up around the, uh, the Thanksgiving uh, day table. 
where are you with the relationships with the four of them now? Well, fortunately, I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that I have a very strong, positive, loving relationship with all of those uh, children. Uh, and I am very happy that uh, they have uh, re-engaged with me and that we are able to go on trips together and do things together again that a parent should be able to do with, with his children. Unfortunately, the, the same can't be said about the mother. She still hasn't come to grips with what she's done and she's alienated all of her children from her. Um, and I try to encourage the children and I've encouraged Robin to understand that she was misled by pastors. It wasn't all her fault. Uh, and yet she's reluctant to take that step of faith, uh, to believe that she can rehabilitate her relationship with her children if she would just show some humility, this process. I will tell you this, Bruce, I think every great story has an arc. And what I love about the arc of your story is as you said, you know, prior to all this happening, you had a law license, you've been in the JAG Corps, in the military, you weren't actively practicing law, you weren't down there in the trenches, and then you lost your law license, you worked so hard to get while you were behind bars, you come back out, you get that law license, and then you put it to work trying to help people who were in the same situation as you. So you spent the next, what, two decades as a, a trial attorney? right down there in the trenches, trying to help folks uh, that were in the same situation. I did, Burke, and I actually was lucky because a lot of people, they saw somebody like me who had compassion for them and for the system that sometimes chews you up and spits you out. Fortunately, we have a justice system that's also one of the fairest in the world because they were able to see that, yes, my constitutional rights were violated. I was given a new trial. Uh, and that doesn't happen. It certainly wouldn't happen in Russia today, as you and I both know. Uh, but uh, I, I can say that uh, fighting and persevering is a theme throughout this book that I'm trying to, in telling this story, encourage others to understand that even though you might face the most difficult of circumstances. Don't ever give up. In the inimitable words of Jim Valvano, uh, the basketball coach from NC State, never give up. Never, never give up. And with those words, I leave that with the, the, uh, the viewership to whatever it is that they might be going through. Don't give up. Great words to live by from a guy who didn't give up despite all the odds. And I mean all the odds being stacked against him. He tells a story in his book. He said, she said, Bruce McLaughlin, an attorney from Northern Virginia, the Washington, D.C. area, has, has put it all out there. It's available now at he said, she said, book.com. Bruce, best of luck to you. Thank you for sharing your powerful story. What an amazing story. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, sir. Thank you to our show sponsor, speakermatch.com. Also, our broadcast partners at Headline Books and their Zoom into Books platform. With a big time talker podcast, Burke Allen here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being here wherever you go, whatever you do. Make it a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>